Hello, and welcome back to our second episode in Petra's Points of Discussion podcast on the topic of should immune modulators be prescribed for skin diseases in children with Down syndrome. This program is brought to you by the Pedra Down Syndrome Focus Study Group. If you didn't hear episode one, go back and listen now. It's available on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer. It's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA or its speakers and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. And now I'd like to welcome back your moderator, Dr. Jillian Rourke. Dr. Rourke is a pediatric dermatologist at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and clinical assistant professor of dermatology and pediatrics at Geisel School of Medicine. She is the founder and co-chair of PEDRA's Down Syndrome Focus Study Group. She has a monthly Down Syndrome Dermatology Clinic at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, where she sees both children and adults with Down Syndrome. She has given many national lectures and podcasts to improve education and awareness of skin care in people with Down Syndrome. Welcome back, Dr. Rourke. Thank you so much, Jen. So welcome back to session two. In our first session, we highlighted um, what are the skin conditions in children with Down syndrome that might require immune modulators. What we're going to talk about now are what are the, some of the pros and cons of using immune modulators to treat skin disease in children with Down syndrome. And we'll try to have this be a dynamic conversation about side effects and specifically relate this to some medical conditions um, in children with Down syndrome. So I just wanted to welcome back our panel, um, Dr. Kishore Velodi, thanks for coming back. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me back. I learned so much in session one, I'm excited. Oh, you're very kind. Um, we'll welcome back Dr. Emily Gurney. Thank you so much, looking forward to part two. And Dr. Christy Holland. Thanks, Jillian. Glad to be back. So Dr. Gurney, I'm wondering if you can start us out with talking about some side effects for JAK inhibitors. Absolutely. So um, certainly our use of JAK inhibitors, I think, is expanding quickly. Um, so understanding potential side effects is really important to have a detailed, informed consent discussion with our families. Um, in some of the trials, the most common side effects seen were um, upper respiratory tract infections, urinary tract infections, acneiform eruptions for some of the JAK inhibitors or folliculitis, um, dyslipidemia, neutropenia, and fungal infections. So those were all the sort of relatively mild reactions that were seen. Um, unfortunately, there are several black box warnings on sort of all the JAK inhibitors used for inflammatory skin conditions at this point, um, mostly coming from trials of tofacitinib done in rheumatoid arthritis patients who were 50 years or older. Um, the first being an increased risk of infection, specifically zoster, um, but also pneumocystis pneumonia, tuberculosis. So there is a concern about increased risk of severe infection. There is a question of an increased risk of malignancy. So lymphoma and solid tumors. Uh, specifically, they bring up lung cancer and smokers. 
So maybe not something we're as familiar with discussing in our pediatric patients, but a consideration certainly. Major cardiovascular events are something that need to be discussed with families, um, including both MIs and strokes. Patients um, in families should be aware of that risk, as well as a risk of potentially increased risk of thrombosis. So both PE, DVT, and arterial clots. Um, Overall, there is a question of increased risk mortality, particularly related to sudden cardiovascular death um, that was seen in the initial trials. The FDA mandated that the drug manufacturers go back and study this in more detail um, due to these sort of initial safety signals that were seen. Uh, New England Journal earlier this year published a pretty extensive study comparing JAK inhibitors to TNF-alpha inhibitors um, and looked at over 4,000 patients in high-dose tofacitinib, lower-dose tofacitinib, and compared it with TNF-alpha inhibitors. Uh, they did see that the pooled risk in the patients with taking tofacitinib was higher, both for major cardiovascular events and malignancy. So I think it's really important to highlight that that comparison for both people prescribing these medications and for patients and families, again, so we can have a really detailed informed consent discussion if we're going to talk about prescribing JAK inhibitors. Now, um, the overall increased risk for tofacitinib relative to JAK inhibitors was low, was about 1%. And it's really not clear why or how that um, difference in risk for malignancy and um, severe cardiac events happens. So was it that TNF-alpha inhibitors decrease the risk? Um, Again, this study was done in patients with rheumatoid arthritis with at least one cardiovascular risk factor at baseline. So how much does that apply to all of the patients that we see? How much that, does that apply to pediatric patients? How much does that apply to people who are not being treated for rheumatoid arthritis and being treated for alopecia areata, hydratinitis, other conditions? And really, how much does that apply to patients with Down syndrome? So I think we're probably going to talk a little bit more about that um, later in this podcast, and I'm interested to hear what the group is going to say. Yeah, I think um, before we transition over to that, I know um, Dr. Gurney, you did such a nice job talking about that comparative trial and talking about TNF-alpha inhibitors. Dr. Holland, I wonder if you can flesh out some more, um, some of the more major side effects for TNF-alpha inhibitors just to kind of round out that portion of the conversation. Sure. Um, well, I think, you know, similar to uh, some of the data for the JAK inhibitors, uh, you know, in the trials where TNF-alpha inhibitors or the other biologics uh, have been looked at, you know, there have been a slight increase rate of some of the upper respiratory infections like nasopharyngitis and pharyngitis compared to placebo. Um, injection site reactions are uh, something unique to, uh, that we don't see in the JAK inhibitors with those being oral. Um, fortunately, that uh, that doesn't seem to be quite as common uh, in uh, children. Um, the, the safety profile largely has been shown to be similar to that of adults. Uh, so we haven't seen anything to suggest in the studies in the pediatric population that they um, behave differently. With some of the newer biologics uh, with the anti-IL-17 agents, there's a couple of unique um, potential concerns. Um, one is with the uh, at least theoretical risk of an increase in infections with candida as IL-17 is actually a key part of your immune response against candida. 
And also uh, with the potential concern for flaring inflammatory bowel disease, uh, they actually did a trial, an exploratory trial of anti-IL-17 medications in patients with Crohn's disease and observed uh, a significant increase in activity in those patients. And we certainly are aware in the trials that there have been new cases of inflammatory bowel disease that uh, were unmasked by uh, the IL-17, the anti-IL-17 agents. I think one other thing that I would, uh, in thinking about this, that I would bring up uh, with any type of immunomodulation and I, and I know this was discussed a bit at our recent Society of Pediatric Dermatology meeting, but anytime you're sort of shifting um, immune mediators, you know, we, I think we have the potential for triggering something else um, or um, even having paradoxical flares of the skin disease that we're trying to treat. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there's, there may be some differences that we don't fully understand in one person with psoriasis versus another that, um, that maybe with more time and maybe better genotype, phenotype correlation, we might be able to start to predict, you know, who, um, is going to, you know, have sort of a aberrant response to the treatment. So I think that's something that I don't think about as much with the jack inhibitors and maybe it's just from lack of experience with those but uh and maybe we'll have learn more but i think about them as being a little bit broader so maybe harder to sort of swing the um the immunophenotype one way or the other so well, i think that's a really excellent point and certainly something that was highlighted you know at our, at our recent meeting and something that i know in talking with you about complex cases like you've seen that in your own patients um, even with down syndrome so dr velodi i want to link you in on the conversation now because i want to know what's going through your brain when you're hearing all these side effects um, as a as a down syndrome expert and knowing their um, medical conditions so well so can you can you kind of contextualize some of these side effects that were just brought up um, by doctors Gurney and Holland and how that might relate to somebody with Down syndrome? Yes, of course. Yeah, these are these are areas that, of course, are going to be of concern also to parents as we talk about these types of medications with them as well. Uh, I think a couple of the areas we were just hitting on thinking about infection risks, right? We know that in children with Down syndrome, they have increased rates of infection, especially sinopulmonary infections. We suspect that it's due to their underlying anatomical differences. So the mid-face hypoplasia that we see in people with Down syndrome often will impair their ability to drain their sinuses, impair their ability to uh, drain their middle ear canal, which raises, the, it raises their chances of having middle ear infections. Uh, as well as sinusitis. And then in addition to that, we see a lot of pulmonary infections as well in people with Down syndrome. There's a lot of theories behind it. I don't know that anybody really knows why. Uh, certainly there may be some impaired mucociliary clearance, but there also could be just underlying known immune deficiencies in people with Down syndrome that prevent them from fighting off infections that typically come to the sinopulmonary area. For example, strep pneumo and encapsulated bacteria 
uh, like strep pneuma are very difficult for children with Down syndrome to mount an effective immune response against, including even when you vaccinate them with Prevnar, which is of course part of the childhood vaccination series, when you check antibody levels uh, on the children to those specific Prevnar um, um, antigens, they don't make the same immune response that you would expect. So, so there's definitely immune-related, infection-related concerns that we would have for these types of medications to be given uh, to them. And then the other side of it, we were talking about increased malignancy risks. Um, This is one area that's so interesting in people with Down syndrome. We know that they have a higher incidence of leukemia. Leukemia is, uh, happens in about 36 out of a thousand children with Down syndrome under the age of 15. That's compared to 0.8 out of a thousand in children who don't have Down syndrome. So it's a significantly increased risk and nobody knows why leukemia is more common in people with Down syndrome. But then on the flip side, as we've been just sharing with these particular medications and concerns for solid organ tumors, that's an area that we don't see very often uh, an issue in people with Down syndrome. And again, nobody knows why there must be gene products on the 21st chromosome that are oncoprotective against solid organ tumors. And and again, this is an area that's under pretty active research trying to figure out, well, what is that gene product that, you know, potentially we could uh, use to help the general population also when we're talking about struggling with some of these uh, solid organ tumors. And so it's a a mixed bag, I guess. It's, It's not an easy answer in this one, Dr. Rourke, for sure. Yeah, I think um, that is a really common question that we get, especially with TNF-alpha inhibitors, is this question of increased risk of lymphoma. And, you know, from what you just said, it's it's more of a leukemia risk than the Down syndrome population at a younger age. And it's a specific kind of leukemia. Is that right, Dr. Williams? It is, in fact. So we see a specific type of AML in people with Down syndrome, uh, and it's actually so specific, it actually gets its own name. It's myeloid leukemia of Down syndrome or MLDS. And surprisingly, again, they have a better treatment outcome in this type of AML than do other children who don't have Down syndrome who get AML. So again, lots Mm -hmm. of things that you could fill a book of things we don't know about Down syndrome more than you could probably write a book about what we do know. There's so much unknown. Uh, And now we're talking about all these wonderful medications and we have so much unknown there too, right? Which is why this podcast is so important. Can you touch upon um, any associated risk with inflammatory bowel disease, just as that's in the front of our brains as we think about IL-17? Yeah, you know, we don't see, at least in the literature and even in my own clinical practice, we don't see a lot of overlap between Down syndrome and uh, inflammatory bowel disease, which is pretty much the opposite of what I say when I think about Down syndrome and any other autoimmune type condition, as you guys have highlighted so beautifully today, all the autoimmune skin conditions, but you add on top of that, every other autoimmune issue that we can see in people with Down syndrome. And yet inflammatory bowel disease doesn't seem to be on that list. And so even trying to find things that would maybe find a connection, you find isolated case reports, but we don't really see a big link between the two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and what about cardiovascular risk um, and, and also blood clot risk? Do we have any information about that and how to have that conversation? 
We do in that my adult colleagues who take care of adults with Down syndrome say that their big three that they worry about in adults in general, they don't worry about in their adults with Down syndrome. So when we're thinking about cardiovascular, stroke, um, uh, high cholesterol, uh, atherosclerosis, all these things that we as adults uh, worry about, uh, we don't see in people with Down syndrome. So when we think about cardiovascular risk, we're really thinking about the, the younger child with Down syndrome with congenital heart defects or something like that. But we're not thinking about things like atherosclerosis. In fact, so much so that when we have our uh, national meetings talking about uh, Down syndrome and case, interesting cases that we've seen, an MI would be an interesting case to talk about uh, in, amongst us, in our, in our, amongst our colleagues that take care of people with Down syndrome because we don't see MIs. And if they were having an MI, maybe there was some sort of rare anatomical thing, but it won't be a cholesterol plaque related thing. So we don't see very much of that. We don't also see a lot of things like DVTs, uh, deep venous thrombosis going to pulmonary emboli or going to strokes or anything like that. And people with Down syndrome, again, very fascinating that these so these things that are so common in the general population, we just don't see even in adults with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess just uh, in, in, um, in, in general, what is the expected life? What is the life expectancy now for somebody with Down syndrome? Yeah, so if you were to look at life expectancy now, we're looking into the late 50s, early 60s. But again, this is um, a group, a cohort of people with Down syndrome that really did not have medical care 60 years ago. And so who knows what now this population now is going to be doing uh, 20, 30 years, 40 years from now, how they're going to be doing now that they actually are receiving the medical care that they deserve. In fact, one of the things that you think about is if you look at the life expectancy in the 1940s and 50s for somebody with Down syndrome compared to today, and you took that same life expectancy increase and put it on our general population, we'd all be living into the 300s. So it's been such a remarkable increase in life expectancy, even in the last 50, 60 years that we don't know what the next 50, 60 years will bring. Gosh, that is so insightful to have that comparison. I mean, that really shows us just how, how medical care has made such a tremendous difference. And mm -hmm. I, I think in that light, um, you know, let's start talking about some of the pros for using these medicines and that have a huge effect um, on, on patients' quality of life and, and, and on their, on so many aspects of their life. So, um, so Dr. Holland, if I were to ask you to be on the pro side of using some of these immune modulators, what would you say about that? What do you think the positives are? Well, I, I'm more than happy to represent the pro side since I do <laughs> use these medications in these patients. So, uh, so thank you for asking me to represent this side of the, uh, of the controversy. Um, so, you know, I think the most important thing is that um, these medications work really well and they can work really fast. Um, and we have data for many of these, as I said, uh, in children um, compared to, you know, actual controlled trials in children compared to some of the conventional therapies that we had used in the past for and I'll pick psoriasis, for example, because that's the one that I would say I have most experience with. Um, and so we can actually say that this is, you know, been designed, the dose is right, you know, we, you know, and, and so I think that that's a huge thing. But it's also, you know, like I said, they, they do work really well. 
um, patients um, get relief uh, of their problem, you know, with psoriasis, um, you know, they can be very uncomfortable and it can affect their ability to, to move um, because their skin is uncomfortable. Same with hydratinitis, you know, hard for these kids to, um, you know, dance and to their music and, um, and do the activities, you know, the, the, some of my patients are in special Olympics and, you know, if their skin is, um, not healthy, it's really hard for them to participate in the things that they enjoy. Um, I, I think that the more, um, specific to the biologics than Jack inhibitors, uh, that I think the advantage of not having to get lab monitoring, uh, is, is a, a bonus over some of the conventional uh, psoriasis treatments. Although, you know, on the flip side, um, they do have to receive the medication through an injection. Um, so sort of weighing the pros and cons of that. Uh, I think there's uh, less risk uh, for patients who have other comorbidities uh, with some of the other psoriasis specifically medications that may affect the kidney or the liver. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, some of these patients and, and I'd be interested in, uh, in hearing what Dr. Velody uh, says in terms of, you know, uh, risk for, you know, things like fatty liver, since, uh, some of these patients can have obesity. Um, but certainly if they did, um, you wouldn't want to use, uh, a medication that might affect the liver. Um, and I've had patients with renal impairment and down syndrome. So I think, you know, making sure you're looking at the whole picture, uh, I would say, in addition, the um, long-term efficacy has been shown. You know, the these don't. Many of these medications have been studied out a year or two years, and uh, and continue to work for them. And because they don't have to worry about some of the end organ issues with some of the conventional therapy, we don't feel as compelled to. Um, reach a point where we give them a drug holiday and cycle them off and wait for their skin to flare again, and then put them back on, we can leave them on these things. Uh, the Jack inhibitors, you know, they're, they're new. Um, so we, I think we need to, uh, get more experience with them in terms of their safety specific to the, the two, um, pediatrics. Uh, I think what's attractive to Jack inhibitors is that I'm starting to think there's nothing they don't fix. Um, and so if a patient has, alopecia areata, and they have psoriasis, you could really kill two birds with one stone instead of sort of just zeroing in on the mechanism for that condition. Uh, and I think perhaps there'll be less risk for some of the paradoxical disease flares, as I mentioned before with those. Oh, I, I think that's great. I think um, Dr. Holland too, will touch upon this a bit later, but thinking about the mechanisms of disease for Down syndrome, you know, thinking about Jack inhibitors, you know, might, might make sense too, um, moving forward. So not to put you in the hot seat for the cons, Dr. Gurney, but can you, can you tell us what's going through my, your mind when you hear all the positives? I'm ready to take on the cons. I had a semester <laughs> of debate in high school, so I am ready to take on all of what Dr. Holland just, just told us. Um, I think one important point that Dr. Rourke brought up earlier when we talk about efficacy is we really don't know what the efficacy is specific to our persons with Down syndrome that we're treating. We know the efficacy in persons without Down syndrome pretty well for a lot of these medications, particularly for psoriasis, um, but we just don't know. I, I don't think there's enough data to really know how effective and to give families and, and patients 
good advice about what they can expect about efficacy. Um, and that goes for safety to some extent too. So I think um, that's a really important point when we're discussing this uh, with families. The other point that I would bring up, not specific to, to individuals with Down syndrome, but in general, is that we're treating chronic conditions here. It's really difficult to know what is the endpoint, how long are we going to be using these relatively high-risk medications, um, and then does the efficacy wane over time if you know we're treating children for the most part of people listening to this podcast? So how long are we signing up this child to be taking these high-risk medications require lab monitoring? close monitoring for infection. You know, of course, we have to balance all those things with the incredible impact on quality of life that these conditions can have. Certainly, you know, like Dr. Holland mentioned, the JAK inhibitors are very new. So it may be the ones that we have right now may not be the best JAK inhibitors to treat the conditions we want to treat. There's a lot on the horizon. So potentially in the next few years, we may have safer, more targeted treatments um, to offer our patients. And then, as was mentioned before, you know, there's pain with injection. There's pain with having frequent blood draws if we're treating um, children or anyone that has, you know, phobia of needles. That's a major consideration. All right. So, Dr. Velody, you get to make the choice right now whether you want to be pro or con, or I guess you could be neutral. Oh, my <laughs> so goodness. So, what do you think when you hear these both sides? I'm just getting used to meeting everyone and trying to be friends with everyone. And next thing I know, I have to pick a side. I don't know, actually. I have to be honest. This is a, it's a very challenging uh, discussion to have because, a, as we've highlighted, there's certainly suspicion that these, these medications are going to be highly effective and perhaps even... Um, effective towards multiple autoimmune conditions at one time, which as we all know, as one autoimmune, autoimmune condition becomes two, three, and four are often not far behind. And so and the idea that some of these uh, medications could impact multiple areas of autoimmunity are, are, is certainly uh, a compelling uh, thing. At the same time, and as we all I think on this podcast, our, our parents uh, of children as well, you always wonder if these haven't been studied, uh, at least not long term, and has certainly not been studied in people with Down syndrome, who we know they don't have always the same side effect panel as everybody else, perhaps worse, we don't know, um, in these situations. Are we setting kids up for long term later on down the road thinking, oh, nuts, this was we thought a great idea, but here we are 15 years later and it wasn't as great as we thought. So, oh, I wish I could fall on one side or the other. I'm like, on the one hand, I, as I started, I was so pro. And then as I talked myself out of it, I'm back to con. So I think I'm neutral. I'm going to stay neutral on this one. <laughs> you're, you're waving the Switzerland flag. I am. <laughs> no, I, I think that's excellent. Um, and, and before I close out this, this, portion um, of the podcast, I know um, that Dr. Holland brought up some good points about fatty liver disease and renal function. I don't know, Dr. Velody, if you can touch on that, because I think our yeah. listeners will probably want to know what your answer is on those. Definitely. No, I appreciate that. Uh, the, the, the incidence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is actually higher in people with Down syndrome. And it's something that should be considered, particularly in those uh, in the population who end up getting overweight and obese. Uh, there have been studies that have shown quite clearly that we don't consider it enough. Um, and it is there when we look for it. So as, as children start to get into that overweight, obese stage, we do often uh, recommend checking 
tracking liver function testing. That's not part of, of course, the Down syndrome specific guidelines. That's just based on their body habitus. So it would be something that we would certainly consider. And in terms of renal dysfunction, historically, classically, people used to say that renal dysfunction is not associated with Down syndrome, although there is some uh, groundswell of thinking that perhaps maybe hydration status, and also just kind of dysfunctional voiding in general might be causing more renal dysfunction than we've actually previously considered. So stay tuned um, to that. There's certainly no clear data on that, but it's certainly something that we're all looking into. Oh, that, that's excellent. I think we'll close out this portion of, um, of this podcast so that we can come back together in session three and, and really have that be a roundtable discussion on how we process the, the first two sessions and actually talk about it with our patients and families. So we look forward to you listening in. Once again, thank you for tuning in to episode two of this Points of Discussion podcast, Should Immune Modulators Be Prescribed for Skin Diseases in Children with Down Syndrome? In our third and final episode, which is out now in the Pedra Pearls podcast channel, the panel comes together to discuss what research is currently happening and what research still needs to be done to better answer these questions. I'd like to thank Dr. Jillian Rourke for moderating these sessions and our guest speakers, Dr. Velody, Dr. Gurney, and Dr. Holland. And I would especially like to thank our program sponsors, AbbVie Inc., Eli Lilly and Company, Sanofi Genzyme, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for their support of this independent medical education program. Pedra is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. Be sure to listen to more Pedra podcasts by subscribing to that Pedra Pearls podcast channel. And don't forget to subscribe to our Getting to Know You Pedra channel, also available on Spotify, iTunes, and Google podcasts. There you can meet the individuals that make up Pedra's membership and who are doing the research. You can also learn more about our educational programming by hopping on over to www.pedraresearch.org. You can also hop on over to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and find us at Pedra Research. And we're on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching for the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. Stay tuned for episode three. And thanks for listening.